Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Great to see all of you. It's so good to come into God's house and praise him together this morning. I don't know about you, but I love stories and I love the parables and I've grown to love them even more as we've been opening them up this summer and studying them. Jesus is a master at telling a story that applies exactly to the situation that he finds himself in. And the parables that we're going to be looking at the next two weeks are no different. I get the privilege of unpacking the three parables of Luke 15 for you the next two weeks. This week, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and next week, the parable of the lost sons, or the prodigal son, as it is often known. These three parables are all about lostness, a sheep, a coin, sons, and there are beautiful connections between all three of them. The size of the group's moves progressively smaller in number, 100 sheep, 10 coins, two sons, while the value increases, one sheep out of 100, a laborer's wages for a poor woman, and a son. The result is a beautiful message, both to Jesus's contemporaries and to us, about the heart of God, the beautiful heart of God. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father God, we thank you so much for your word we thank you that you have given it to us so that we might be encouraged, comforted, challenged. Speak to us this morning through your word. Holy Spirit, be present in our hearts. Speaking to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever lost something? Maybe keys, glasses. More recently, I hear some laughs, some people have lost something. More recently, I've noticed that people have lost their masks. They're like, where's my mask? I don't know. Thankfully, we're coming out of needing to find our mask. Maybe you've lost a wedding ring, a child in a crowded market or museum. When you lost that thing, didn't your anxiety and diligence in searching for it increase if the value of the item was greater? You're going to search much harder for a lost child than you're going to search for a book that you don't really care that much about. In March 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 was lost in the Indian Ocean. And this prompted the largest, most expensive search and rescue mission ever. It was a multinational endeavor involving 10 nations. 
It spanned over 100,000 square kilometers. It lasted over three years. It's estimated to have cost well in excess of $100 million. All that was ever found was a small piece of debris and one damaged suitcase. But that effort and expense was worth it. If only one individual could have been found to give the families who had lost their loved ones peace to know what had happened, to help the international aviation community to know what went wrong. All of that was worth the time, the effort, and the expense. Our God is a diligent searcher. One commentator on this passage says, he is the one who takes the initiative to recover what is his. He gives no grudging or hesitant acceptance of sinners, but eagerly seeks them and finds cause to celebrate their recovery. The kingdom comes with limitless grace, even for those that others denigrate. In our passage, we see Jesus fellowshipping with sinners. The words used here in verse 2, receive and eat, indicate much more than just sharing a casual meal with them. It designates the creation of fellowship. Jesus is creating a community, a community with those who are outcast and neglected by society. And this displeased many of the religious leaders. They grumbled and complained. They thought in their hearts, how can this man be a righteous, good teacher if he associates with those types of people? How does Jesus respond? He responds with these three parables in Luke 15. These parables are his explanation of how he can associate with sinners and still be a righteous, good teacher. Today, we're going to examine the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the twin pillars of these parables are seeking and joy, seeking and joy. In the Gospels, and especially in these Luke 15 parables, we are confronted with God incarnate in Jesus, a God who delights to welcome and have community with sinners, a God who loves to welcome back those who are rebellious and have rejected him. In fact, we are confronted with a God who, in love, actively, relentlessly seeks out those who have rebelled against him. These parables are not just meant to show the heart of God, but they are also an intentional contrast between Jesus' approach to humanity and the religious leaders of his day, and often our day. Daryl Bach, writing on this passage, says, Jesus reflects the way to God and the way of God. So we see how we come to know God and how we, in turn, should live differently as a result. So the idea we're going to unpack today is that God joyfully, tenderly brings lost sinners back to himself and so we should imitate him. God joyfully, tenderly brings lost sinners back to himself, and so we should imitate him. And we're just going to simply look at that through three main points, the lost, the seeker, and the celebration. The lost, the seeker, and the celebration. First, the lost. In these two parables, we see that there are two things that are lost. First, in verse 4, we see that there's one sheep out of a flock of a hundred that is lost. And second, in verse 8, we see that there is a coin out of 10, which is lost by a poor woman. A few things of note about these two lost items. First, the size of the flock is not actually that important. And it was common during that day in rabbinic teaching for them to use a round number of 100. And so it's very common. And so many people want to make much of the 100, but that's not actually the point. The point is the difference between the size. One lost, 99 safe and secure. The same is true of the woman's lost coin. She loses a silver coin, a drachma, what would be common for a laborer to earn in a day. 
this was uh, of uh, relative value. It wouldn't have been devastating for her to lose, but the woman portrayed here is relatively poor. She has 10 coins. This would have been a significant loss, and it would have been worth her searching for and finding. In Jesus' parables, there are often connections between the context that elicited the telling of the parable and the content of the parable. What is the connection between the lost sheep and the lost coin and his context? It's the lost tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't take uh, an incredibly intelligent person to realize that. It's the lost tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying the sheep and the coin are like these lost individuals. Those who are far from God and outcast by the religious society of Jesus' day were lost. But it's more than that. The religious leaders are lost as well. Jesus intentionally uses the imagery of a shepherd because they were to be God's shepherds over his people. They have lost the sense of the mission for which God chose them and set them apart. They have lost their purpose and in turn are also far from God. And so Jesus' parables have a double meaning to cut to their hearts. Jesus often uses what scholars call from the greater to the, or from the lesser to the greater logic from the lesser to the greater logic. If a lost sheep or a lost coin is valuable, then how much more so an individual created in God's image? An implicit point in these two stories is that if you value something which is lost, then it's worth finding. That which is lost receives special attention over that which is safe and secure. If you value something and it's lost, you're going to go to every effort to find it. Also implicit in this parable is the concept that that which is lost has an owner. We as creatures have a creator. The lost sheep, the lost coin, were owned by the shepherd and the woman. We as creatures created in God's image have a creator, a maker, who in a sense doesn't own us, but is Lord over us. A seminary professor would often say to me and the other students, God doesn't make trash, and he doesn't trash what he makes. God doesn't make trash, and he doesn't trash what he makes. He seeks it out. He saves it. He redeems it. And that's what we see in this passage. These two parables combine in Jesus' teaching to emphasize the value which God himself places on lost humanity. God's creation is precious to him. Even though humanity has rejected him, rebelled against him, sinned against him, we are still precious to him. He made us. He doesn't make trash. He doesn't trash what he makes. The Bible makes God's heart for his precious creation abundantly clear. Humanity is beautifully created in God's image. In Genesis 1, we see how God uniquely created man and woman in his image out of all creation. Humanity is the culmination of the creation account. And it's after he creates man and woman that he says that the creation is very good. In Psalm 139, the psalmist, reflecting on this, says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then later on in that psalm, he talks about how God has numbered every single one of his days. God knows us. We are precious in his sight. The New Testament similarly expresses God's value for humanity. When we are redeemed in Christ, we are adopted, beloved children. In fact, we become temples of the Holy Spirit, each one of us having the Holy Spirit dwell inside of us. We are precious to him. God loves and values humanity, so though we are lost and separated due to our own sin, he doesn't give up. 
though we have rebelled against him, he doesn't turn his back on us. The Russian Romanov Tsars would have these priceless Fabergé eggs created to commemorate birthdays, anniversaries, and special events. Only 70 in all of history were created, and each one is incredibly unique. They are made out of these precious materials, gold, jewels. The first one ever made is called the hen egg. It was made by the czar for his wife. It is made out of white gold, and it breaks open, and on the inside is a hen, or actually first is a yolk of gold inside the egg. Then inside of that is a hen sitting on a nest of gold, and then you break open the hen, and inside of that is a miniature crown with these precious jewels on it. Every single one of these eggs is made exactly like that. They are incredibly priceless. They are beautiful, stunning. Each one is unique and impossible to reproduce, and so they're of inestimable value, not only because of the materials, but because of their uniqueness. The reality is that this is how our Heavenly Father views each single one of us. We are an individual created unique, precious, and so when we are lost by him, he grieves that loss. It grieves his heart. Before knowing Christ, we are all lost spiritually. Humanity is all cut off from the life-giving relationship with God for which we were created and designed. We were as lost as could be without him. Parables are meant to cut to the audience's heart. They're meant to expose sinful attitudes and thoughts. Do we view others, other individuals, as lost and in the same light as God? Or do we view them as trash, not worth redeeming, not worth saving? What do we think about ourselves? Do we view ourselves as trash because of our sin, because of our repeated failure? Too often we believe lies about ourselves and others. We hear the whispers, you're a failure. You aren't worth saving. You'll never amount to anything. Why haven't you gotten it together yet? Again and again you keep failing. God made you, and he considers you worth saving. What does one feel when you are lost? When you're lost, maybe you can put yourself in a memory where you've been lost in the shopping mall away from your parents. You feel fear. You feel fear. A life apart from God is one characterized by fear. Fear of being unloved, unaccepted, unvalued. Fear compounded with shame, guilt, self-blame, blame of others. That is the reality if you do not know God, even if it's hidden down deep inside. And sadly, it's sometimes the reality when we do know God. But what is the opposite of fear? The opposite of fear is faith. Trust in the Lord, trust in his promises, his salvation, trust in his declaration that in Christ we are saved, redeemed, adopted, and beloved, and can now live a life that is pleasing to him. Who are the lost around you? Remind yourself on a daily basis that they are worthy of value, respect, salvation. God made them, and God doesn't make trash. He saves what he has made even when we wreck it. The second thing we see in these two parables is the seeker. Uh, We have two different seekers in these these parables, a a shepherd seeking his lost sheep and a woman seeking her lost coin. In Jesus' day, a shepherd was a despised trade. It was not something that people admired. However, there is an element where the Bible equates God with a shepherd over his people. 
and the leaders of God's people were to be shepherds. The Old Testament uses this imagery. Psalm 23, probably famous to you. Many of the prophets indict God's leaders for being poor shepherds. So Jesus' first parable of the lost sheep both shows forth God's awesome character as a shepherd, and it indicts the religious leaders who are criticizing them, him. He's saying that they have not gone after the lost sheep. They have not been the shepherd which they have been called to be. The shepherd and woman are used as analogies for God's love for lost sinners. Jesus is simply saying God's great love and desire for sinners to come back to him is like this shepherd and this woman. Parenthetically, it's very fascinating to me that Jesus would choose to use a shepherd and a woman in this parable where he's teaching the elites of his day, the religious leaders who had all the respect, all the authority, all of the material wealth that anyone could want. He uses a shepherd and a woman whom they would look down upon to teach them. Jesus is constantly using things that the world rejects in a positive way. So there's so many things that we can learn from this parable. There's an, is there an element of absurdity in which the shepherd would never leave 99 sheep to go look for only one? Some people have seen it that there. I don't necessarily do that because we don't need to assume that the shepherd left the 99 and, and abandoned them. Maybe there was another shepherd. Maybe he put them in a safe enclosure. The parable doesn't say because that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is the one that is lost. And so the shepherd goes to find it. The shepherd and the woman point to God's character revealed in Jesus' ministry. What do we see? We see first that he values the least deserving. He values those that the world rejects, and so he cares for them and seeks them out. Second, we see that God is not passive. A commentator, Snodgrass, he's got an interesting name, Snodgrass, says God is not passive, waiting for people to approach him after they get their lives in order. He is the seeking God who takes the initiative to bring people back, regardless of how lost they are. Third, we see that God is tender and compassionate. Look at the imagery used here of the shepherd putting the lost sheep upon his shoulders and carrying it home to safety. That is our God, tender and compassionate. Fourth, we see that God, seek, his seeking does not come with conditions attached. His seeking does not come with conditions attached. Because it's his and it's lost, it's worth seeking and finding. That's it. That's it. The shepherd values his lost sheep, so he goes out and gets it. It doesn't say, hey, is that shepherd in good health? Does that shepherd have the most beautiful white, or does that sheep have the most beautiful white fur? No, it's his sheep, so he goes and finds it. Same with our God. Fifth, we see the persistence and diligence of God. No matter how lost humanity is, God will pursue them and find them. And this is the whole biblical witness. It's not just these parables in Luke 15. The Old and the New Testament portray God as one who grieves and mourns the separation from his people due to sin. If you go to the very beginning in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinfully rebelled against God, he doesn't turn his back on them. They're hiding in the garden, and he seeks them out. He doesn't destroy them in his anger, but he promises redemption to them by saying, one of my children will crush Satan's head. And then he teaches them how to make sacrifices and clothes them in warm clothes instead of these fig leaves that they've done for themselves. That is our God from the very beginning. And we see the same in his repeated promises to Abraham and his descendants. 
to Moses and the people of Israel, to David, to the people of Israel again and again under the kings. God is promising, I'm going to save you despite your repeated failures, despite your repeated sin. That's the message of the prophets. Again and again, we see the Lord speaking to his wayward, lost, sinful people in the language of Joel 2, where he says, yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That is the heart of our God, repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament and the New. Amen. Yeah, the Old Testament often portrayed rebellious, sinful Israel as a sheep without a shepherd. There's so many passages in the Old Testament where God says, you're like sheep without a shepherd. And amazingly, that imagery repeats in the Gospels. In Mark 6, Jesus sees the great crowds gathered, and it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. In Luke 19, when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to his death, it says that he weeps with great compassion because of his people, Israel's persistent rebellion and rejection of him and God. Our God's heart is one that longs to seek after us. I'm fascinated by this recent story that I came across, art collector and poet Forrest Fenn. He hid a treasure of jewels and gold worth well over $2 million in the Rocky Mountains. He explained where the treasure was hidden in one of his poems. And then over the next 10 years, hundreds of people searched throughout the Rocky Mountains looking for this based on the clues in his poems. People attempted all manner of acts, hiking hundreds of miles throughout the Rocky Mountains. Some of them repelled thousands of feet down cliffs searching. Some of them were jailed because they trespassed on government property and other places. Sadly, five people died searching for this treasure. They attempted all manner of things just to find this treasure that they considered valuable. They sought it out with all their heart and effort. It was finally found in 2020, and people no longer risked their lives. If human treasure hunters will go to such efforts to secure a treasure, how much more will our God go to every effort to find us who he considers of inestimable value? He went to all efforts. His son, Jesus, came to the earth and died for us. The parable is meant to challenge our perception of God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had a warped perception of God, and we also, whether we realize it or not, have a warped perception of God. Due to our own sin, due to our society and our culture's unique sins, we have a warped perception of God, and so we need to be challenged by this parable. As we better perceive who God is, as we better see him, we will imitate God and the way, his ways more. In Jesus' life and words, he reflected the way to God and the way of God. He intended his audience to imitate and follow him, to become a seeker of that which is lost and valued by our great God. We who are Christians were once lost, but now we have been found found for a purpose, found in order that we might also become seekers of other lost, loved lambs. Is this central to who we are as a church? Is it central to who you are individually? 
Does this inform every single one of your interactions with those who are on your daily route? As you're going about your day with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, your classmates at school, people at the gym, the pharmacy, the grocery store, everywhere you go, do you see individuals and think that is a person created in God's image who God wants to come back to himself, who God is seeking out to save? When we are chosen, then we are in danger of becoming arrogant. That's what happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They thought, we are the chosen people of God. We have been saved. God loves us and values us. How can we not be awesome? You should laugh. (laughs) It's ridiculous. But how often do we think that way? I'm saved by God. I'm chosen. I'm special. We are saved for a purpose, to be part of his mission. Finally, we see the celebration. What is the result of the seeker finding that which is lost? Great joy, communal celebration. Both the shepherd and the woman gather together their neighbors and friends to celebrate and rejoice over what they have found, the lost thing that they valued. This is the point of the parable. The intent of his story was to drive home the repeated phrase of verses 7 and 10, where in almost the exact same language, he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The joy described in verses 7 to 10 is not merely the joy of the angelic host. It's the joy of God himself when a sinner comes back to the family. Jesus says, God delights and rejoices over a sinner who repents and returns to him. If people celebrate and rejoice when they find lost items or possessions, then how much more so does the intimate creator rejoice when a lost daughter or son is returned to him? In verses 7 to 10, there's a subtle subtle distinction. In verse 7, it says there will be much joy. In verse 10, it says there is joy. Jesus is trying to say that in the present and in the future, there's going to be so much joy that it's overflowing. What do we do with the 99 sheep who didn't go astray? Did they not need to repent? After all, Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But to ask this question is almost to miss the point. One commentator says these parables teach virtually nothing about the nature of repentance, but rather emphasize how much God values repentance. And we're going to see next week in the prodigal sons, the lost sons, that actually both sons needed to repent. And so there's nobody who does not need to repent. There's an element of incongruity in the celebration of both the shepherd and the woman. The communal celebration thrown by the shepherd and the woman would probably have been more expensive than the lost items were actually worth. Gathering together all your friends and family would have cost more than one silver drachma. Gathering together all your friends and family for a big celebration most likely involves slaughtering a lamb, if not more. And so there's an element where they're celebrating and they're spending more than these items were actually worth. What is this supposed to show us? It serves to heighten the amazing joy which God takes in a child return to the fold in the family. God values us so much that it doesn't matter the cost. God delights in sinners restored to fellowship and relationship with himself. Jesus ties God's rejoicing to the sinner's repentance. That is a key thing here, the repentance. God does not rejoice merely in humanity regardless of their repentance or not regardless of their choice to persist in sin or not. Just as a loving parent would not delight in a child 
harming themselves again and again. Because sin harms us. Not repenting harms us. And so God wants us to repent, and then he delights when we do. The book of Isaiah is a beautiful picture of both the past, the present, and the future of God's people. And in Isaiah 62, Isaiah is looking forward to the day when all the people of God will be restored to a right relationship with him. And he says in Isaiah 62, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Our God delights when we are returned to him. He's filled with joy and love for each one of you when you return to him in repentance. In 2010, there was a massive earthquake in Haiti that demolished large parts of Port-au-Prince and killed over 200,000 people. 11 days later, after the earthquake, officials declared that search and rescue efforts were over, uh, that they were going to stop them because it was almost impossible that anyone would have survived that long. They estimated that people can really only survive three days under rubble from buildings. However, miraculously, 27 days after the earthquake occurred, Evan Muniz was rescued out of rubble. He had worked in a market and was trapped under the rubble that the market had created. He was extremely malnourished, dehydrated, but alive. His family received him back as if from the dead and had a huge celebration in their neighborhood. His mother on news said, I thought he was dead, but God kept him alive with tears streaming down her face. Can you just imagine the joy and celebration that was happening in that neighborhood when they saw after a month of thinking he was dead, this man returned to them? Our God does not stand off with distant detachment when we repent and return to him. No, he's rejoicing, celebrating a daughter or a son who is estranged and on a path to death has been restored to life and relationship. And so our heavenly father rejoices and all heaven rejoices along with him. That's why many have said that joy is the true mark of Christianity. We should be known by our joy, our celebration. In these parables, we are presented with a God who celebrates when people are restored. Is that who we are as Christians? Are we known for our joy and our celebration? Sadly, not often. <laughs> this is something we need to wrestle with. Are we known in our broader society as people of joy? that celebrate, that rejoice. So I want to encourage and challenge us to celebrate, to celebrate in three ways. And it's going to sound funny when I say it, but let's bear with me. Celebrate me, celebrate you, and celebrate us. Celebrate me, celebrate you, celebrate us. Celebrate me. We need to individually, joyfully remember our salvation. Celebrate it every day as you read scripture, as you pray, as you worship, as you spend your time with God, celebrate your salvation. Remind yourself of the goodness of what God has done for you, that he took you from darkness and brought you into light, that he took you from the path to death and has restored you to life. Celebrate it. Remind yourself. Instill that joy in your heart. Second, celebrate you. This is other-centered. We need to celebrate others and their salvation. We need to joyfully encourage each other by hearing our stories of how we came to know the Lord. 
I'm so thankful for my time and crew. I was on staff about six years and was in crew ministry in college, and they greatly emphasized testimony, sharing how you came to know the Lord. And so I challenge each one of you, find somebody here that's here this morning that you don't know. Say, hey, can you get coffee with me? I just want to hear your story and how you came to know the Lord. Or better yet, invite them over for a meal and share how God has worked in your life and how he's still working, and then celebrate together. Third, celebrate us. This is the communal element. Too often churches are not places of joy, and Christ's people are not marked by exceptional, distinct joy. Rather, we are often divided by fighting and disagreements. We need to celebrate what God is doing here at EP, what God is doing amongst us, even though we might disagree on a few small, inconsequential things. Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't lament and grieve the brokenness of our fallen world. There's so much to lament over. There's so many grievous things that we see every day and that many of us have experienced. We should lament those. We should grieve over those. But we of all people have the best reasons to be filled with joy. We of all people have the most reason to joy, have joy despite the difficult, broken things. So we have to fight for that joy. We have to fight for it through prayer, through celebration. These two parables show the beautiful heart of God, a heart that loves and values his creation, that does not trash us now that we have rejected him and broken all of his good creation through our sin, but the heart of God that relentlessly pursues us and searches us out, a heart that rejoices when we repent and believe. How has the Lord sought us out preeminently? He sought us out in his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to find us and die in our place that we might be restored to the right relationship with the Father. If you're here this morning and you haven't believed in that, I encourage you, evaluate it, think about it, come talk to me afterwards, talk to whoever you came with about this story, this true story of Jesus' love for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we can come here and rejoice and celebrate. Please, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to value that which is lost, to value the things that you value, especially other humans. Lord God, they are created in your image. Create in our hearts compassion, mercy that flows from your heart. Lord God, help us to in turn be like you and seek that which is lost, seek that which you value in our words, our actions, our deeds. Lord God, help us to be people who are characterized by joy, celebrating and rejoicing over the work you have done. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.